Well, hello again and welcome to the latest podcast, this one being for July 2016. We're in the summer now, allegedly, although in the UK, the weather's not been that great recently. It's funny, a friend of mine said, uh, you do realise that with global warming, we seem to now get our summer, such as it is, basically in sort of late April or May. And um, the summer months, as we normally identify them, June, July, August, not so much. Well, it remains to be seen, of course, but uh, there is a certain amount of truth in that, I know. And it's funny for shows uh, as well. I do find that, and this is true generally throughout the year, the predictability of shows also seems to have changed, certainly for me in the last few years as well. Last month, June, and this month, July, I am really, really busy with shows. It's a couple of the best months I've had in ages. And yet earlier in the year, at times when perhaps I might expect there to be a bit more activity, things were really, really quiet. And as a pro of long standing, I know that this is often the case. You can't always predict when shows are going to come in. When the the phone's not going or you're not getting internet inquiries and you're not getting uh, from that shows, bookings coming through, you start to worry, am I doing something wrong? Is my publicity not quite doing what it should be? And you start to analyse what you're doing. And sometimes you you may well change things that you're doing. But there's always such a long lead time to any publicity that you use that sometimes it's really difficult to have an immediate impact and to change things in the short term. But because I've been in this for so long, what I do know is that eventually, over the course of a 12-month period, generally speaking, unless there's a particular reason during the year why things are, are different, every year basically comes out pretty much the same in terms of the number of shows I do and the income I get from them. When those shows come, of course, that's the thing that's variable. And that's when you have to hold your nerve and say, "Okay, well, April was horrendous this year. No shows or hardly any shows. But look at June and July, uh, which last year wasn't the case. It might have been around the other way. So it's it's all a question really of, of holding your nerve and, and not panicking when things don't be seem to be going quite right. But it is it is quite difficult. And I suppose there is a lot of luck involved because not only do um, people need to be wanting to hold events that they're interested in booking a magician for. So that's the first thing. And, and some years there just happen to be a lot of people having special anniversaries or birthdays, um, adult birthdays I'm talking about now rather than children's ones. Adult birthdays, say 30th, 40th, 50th, 60th key ones where they want to have a party and maybe they want to have a magician and come in and, and entertain. Those only might obviously come up once every 10 years. And there could be a little flurry of people all at the same time who are actively looking for magicians and then in another year there may not be so first of all then so you need the actual type of shows that uh, that you offer being in demand then the second thing is people have to find you at the right time when they're thinking of it and not somebody else then they have to actually get round to making an inquiry so that's a third stage of it then you have to respond and they have to consider your inquiry and probably refer it to um, compare it to others that they're getting and then they actually have to book you so it's in a way it's amazing we ever get any bookings isn't it with all these things that people have to go through 
especially for bookings where you're dealing with somebody you've you've never come across before it's it's different obviously if it's a personal recommendation or it's a rebook from something you did many years ago for somebody and they come back to you and the longer you've been working in an area the more likely that is to happen too but certainly for sort of um, cold inquiries if you like then there's so much luck involved that uh, you have to realize that no matter how good your publicity is there are going to be good times and there are going to be bad times and you just have to accept that fact. So we have finally got a magician winning Britain's Got Talent. Well done to Richard Jones. And after the very near miss for Jamie Raven, who came second in a recent series, it was great to see the magician finally has gone all the way and come out number one. Actually, it was interesting because I was comparing the the two performers, Jamie Raven and Richard Jones, and I was trying to work out whether there was any obvious reason why Richard Jones succeeded where Jamie Raven didn't. Because they're both good performers. I thought they were both very um, good the way they came across on their television performances. Um, They were even quite similar in some ways in their presentational styles. Um, so why did Jamie only come second and why did Richard come first? Well, of course, um, partly this is obviously this is mainly down to the audience and what and the way that they um, vote. And it could be very, very close. But um, I did wonder whether Richard in some way, especially with his performance in the final, whether he connected better emotionally with the audience because I think the the whole thing about Britain's Got Talent that it's it's a very emotional show with all the background stuff that they give and all the sort of you know the the way they connect the audience or try to connect the audience with the performers showing what they're like getting behind their personalities so you get to understand perhaps a little bit more about the sort of people that they are and in the way that um that Richard in particular managed to connect with the audience and his his military background and the, his whole performance with the with all the soldiers and everything at the end and turned what was you know basically a close up performance into something more emotional bigger i think that's what did it because i think the general public one magician is as good as another so there there needs to be an empathy that the audience feels for that performer to really push it i'm going to vote for him and i think um, richard nailed it with that uh, and congratulations to him for for coming up with that concept because that was really really good i thought but it's interesting isn't it because when we as all performers when we do perform for our audiences we don't get the benefit of interviews and behind the scenes footage so that the audience gets to know us and for close-up magicians, we're at a table only for a few minutes. And yet in that time, we have got to try, if we can, to encourage people to like us and to engage with us in a way that makes them appreciate what we do and like us and our performance. And it's not actually that easy sometimes. That's why I think people who, who performers who have great personalities who are extremely friendly, smile a lot, if comedy is their thing, who are actually genuinely funny, but then also who manage to involve their audience rather than performing sort of just to them. They perform with them. They, they create an experience that the audience really enjoys and they take part with it. I think that's what makes a really successful performance. And it's a skill because 
cabaret performers might have half an hour, 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe even three quarters of an hour to gradually build an empathy with an audience, whereas the close-up magicians going from table to table have virtually no time at all. And it is difficult. And sometimes it's impossible. I think sometimes you, you, when you're doing a lot of tables at a dinner function, you are a bit of a performing monkey, really. People hardly, you know, you rush up, you, you do a couple of tricks, and then you disappear, and they don't really get to know you at all. And you don't get that much of an opportunity to, to get to know the little group that you've been performing for. And in many ways, that's why I personally really enjoy doing a close-up show for a small group of people, say 10 or a dozen, say like at a private dinner party, either in a restaurant or in somebody's house. Because there I've got 45 minutes where I'm performing up very, very close to people, doing all my best close-up stuff, and I can really get under their skins and really develop my own personality and uh, my own... Uh, contact with them in a really good way and I find those are the shows that leave the most impact those are the ones that where people clearly really really enjoy the whole experience so just a pity that close-up generally doesn't get that opportunity more often I have to admit I'm a bit of well more than a bit I'm a lot a creature of habit I suppose we all are to a greater or lesser extent both in my private life and also in my business life I think about the things that um, I've started over the years in my magic business where I've set up newsletters or, or regular events. This podcast is an obvious example. And if something's working and I enjoy doing it, I like to be very consistent with it and, and keep repeating it at a sort of regular intervals. This podcast is monthly. It comes out on the first of every month. Uh, this edition is the 43rd one because it started back in January 2013. And I like to do this type of thing. I like to be consistent. And one of the things that, that um, also illustrates this is my e-video newsletter. Now, I've been uh, just completed six years of producing one of these on the first of every month. It's, it's a magazine-style vi online video program. It lasts about half an hour, and it has various sections in it which um, people who either subscribe or buy individual issues or who are members of my eClub Pro members club, they get it as part of their subscription anyway, they get to view the teaching where I teach a routine or a move each month, wrinkles where I show variations for my marketed products. It could only happen live, stories of things that have happened to me, some of them funny, some of them horrendous <laughs> in my um, professional working life. Um, then there's um, things like 60 Seconds to Success, which is uh, about a minute or so of targeted advice about a specific magical topic. So there's all things like this, and it, it's all video sections, and uh, every month I produce one of these. And I hadn't quite realised how long I'd been doing it. I mean, six years is a long time to be doing anything, I guess. But it's also a long time to be producing every month with the amount of effort that it takes, these online video presentations. But I absolutely love it. It is so much fun. Um, and it's one of those things that... I suppose if when it stops being fun or when people no longer seem to be interested, then you, you would naturally stop it. But other than that, I see no reason for in the same way with these podcasts. If people are still listening and finding them interesting, then I'm, I'm happy to keep to keep on producing them while I've got something relevant to say. Uh, 
But if you haven't ever had a look at my e-video newsletter, if you go onto my website and um, you look at the e-video uh, page, you'll find a, a trailer. It'll give you a little feeling each month of what the current issue actually holds and you can you can buy an individual access to an individual issue for only two pounds so it's a very nominal sum or you for 18 pounds you can take out a um a one-year sub which actually reduces the price of each one obviously 12 issues over a year it takes individual cost down to only one pound 50 and i think you'll find you get tremendous value out of it so i just mentioned that in passing a, a little landmark of six years now completed and if you haven't ever seen the video newsletter why not go and have a look now, I mentioned earlier in this podcast the way that when show bookings come in, it can be very sporadic. You get a whole load one minute and then nothing the next. And it did lead me to wonder whether if the fee is right and you wanted to, to work and do some shows, would you take on any type of show? I think when I was young and starting out, I kind of had this attitude. I thought, well, look, I'm a professional magician. Then anything that comes in, any type of inquiry, if the fee is right, then I should have a go at doing it because that's I earn my living doing magic. I can't be too, too picky about which shows I do and which shows I don't. And unfortunately, while that is good, perhaps in a short-term financial sense and getting the number of bookings up, it can lead to some slightly disastrous or less than great performances. Because the truth of the matter is, all right, there are some, I suppose, people who are an exception to this, but generally speaking, we as performers specialise or are best at certain types of show. It might, you might be that you're a fantastic children's entertainer, but quite frankly, although you can do close-up tricks, you should never be let loose on the lay, on the lay public doing close-up. Or you might be a fantastic cabaret magician, but you should never do stage illusions, or, and so on and so on. Because most of us, we may start off when we're young, perhaps you know, trying a little bit of this and a little bit of that, trying to find out where our interest lies, where our skills and, our, and uh, what, where we come over best with our personality. But after a while, I think you should start to look at yourself and say, well, where are my strengths? What type of show am I really good at? And then I think start to market specifically for that type of show. These days, if a booking or an inquiry, I should say, comes in for something that I don't feel comfortable with and that I don't think I can cope with adequately, then I will not... I won't uh, quote for it. I'll I'll pass it off and I'll pass it on to somebody else who I know might be able to, to cope with that or be prepared to have a go. So whereas in the old days I would have said, yes, yes, I can do that and then worried to death about it and actually perhaps not done it as well as uh, I might have done. By being a bit more selective, then I start to play to my own personal strengths. And that's good because then when you go out to work, you feel confident you you feel like you're providing proper value for the booker and that the booker was right to book you to do this type of show. Now, there can be situations, of course, where what you understand is going to be the situation for a show turns out not to be the case. Um, sometimes that happens, a misunderstanding between you and the booker, or maybe the booker doesn't fully appreciate the amount of information that you need, accurate information that you need, 
in order to decide whether you're capable of doing the show or not. So they give you what you think is all the information, but actually they haven't. Um, that, that can be a problem too, of course. But generally speaking, I now know where my strengths are. And I generally speaking, I don't tend to take on anything that's outside of that. You could say, well, that's, that's a bit stupid. It's a bit narrow. Why, why do you do that? You're never going to improve. Well, I've got, obviously, personally, in my case, I've reached a stage where I don't need to take on absolutely everything, which is a lovely situation to be in. But also it means I, I am playing to my strengths. I do a better job. I get better recommendations for that type of work. All my publicity, I now know exactly what it is I want to do and is targeted only towards those particular type of bookings and that particular type of work. So everything is much more focused. And so rather than trying to be somebody who can do a little bit of everything, some of it not that well, I like to think that I've got it down to things that I'm confident with that I can do a really good job with. So what do you do? Do you take on anything these days that comes your way uh, and try to, to do your best with it? Or are you more focused too? In the July edition of Magic Scene, which has just come out, there's an article called Making Magic with the Masses. And it's written by Ian Smith. And it's a very interesting article on crowdfunding in magic. Now, I wasn't aware that crowdfunding was being used by magicians at all. In fact, I have no personal experience of crowdfunding, but um, I know of it. And uh, it's a way of generating income and funding for projects where there's not a lot of startup capital. The idea is that lots of different people will pledge a certain amount of money for a project that that is being advertised and that they're interested in. And when they when that person who's doing the project reaches a certain amount, a set amount, then he's allowed to go ahead and the money is called in and he invests the money. But he has to give a return, obviously, to the people who've invested. It's a very interesting idea because sometimes if you, especially for magicians, if you've got a maybe a magic TV thing that you want to do or you have a project that uh, involves you getting something made that you want to market, but the actual tool up costs and production costs are too high for you to fund yourself. If you go to a bank, the bank may go, well, you know, you know how fussy banks are about giving money to people these days for things that aren't cast iron certainties. And of course, especially with magic and the size of the magic marketplace, the returns may not be stellar. And so it's important that if you're going to get some sort of funding that you can convince people that it's a good idea. Well, crowdfunding spreads the risk. Instead of having one organization or one bank funding the whole lot, you have lots and lots of people with a vested interest in its in the success of a particular idea or putting a little bit in. And uh, it spreads the risk for them. It provides you as the as the person trying to do the project with the necessary funding. And in the article that Ian's written, it's it's fascinating because he talks to several people in the magic world who have used this crowdfunding uh, principle to try and get their startup money. And it's interesting because it's not as straightforward or indeed as automatically successful as you think it might be. But nevertheless, it is a way to go. And it could well be that 
with um, these um, there are places they're called platforms and they're platforms called like Kickstarter and Indiegogo which apparently are the two best known ones that places like that attracting the right people looking to invest in all sorts of different things that magic if it's done right could be benefiting from this the problem with magic of course is that we don't want to give away if it's a magic trick for instance we don't necessarily want to give away how the trick is done and if somebody's going to invest in it they're probably going to want to know and part of the discussion in the article is about how do you get around this problem of telling them enough so they have the confidence to want to invest their money but not necessarily giving away exactly what it is that you're asking them to invest in and you know people who are going to put up their own money have a a right and quite uh, understandably to know what it is that they're putting their money into but we may not want to tell them that so that that there is a certain um, juggling of uh, information that needs to be gone through anyway look in the current magic scene uh, the july magic scene because i think you might if you're interested in any of that thing to do with crowdfunding it may open your eyes to the possibilities Now, I must admit, I'm a bit of a performance junkie. I really, really enjoy performing my close-up magic, particularly at various events. And I get a tremendous buzz out of the, the whole thing interacting with people showing them magic seeing their reaction it's such huge fun and i've always said that it it doesn't feel like a job it is my job but it doesn't feel like a job i'm having way too much fun most of the time for it to be so and of course there is a tremendous surge of adrenaline when you are performing Uh, it's a nice feeling especially if things are going well and you're having a lot of success then it feeds your your feelings of exhilaration and fun and pleasure through your performances. And in many ways, that's why even if you're nervous before you go on, you think, oh, goodness, why am I doing this? I'm putting myself through this. Once you start and you get into performance mode, usually that those nerves just melt away and you end up really enjoying it. So that by the end of the show, you think, oh, it was brilliant. I can't wait to do the next one. Of course, the the more confident you get and the longer you've been performing uh, the i think the more um ex- not extreme uh, you do things more that you wouldn't perhaps have done years ago i certainly find this i i say things and i do things on the spur of the moment a lot more than i used to I, I will see a situation and respond to it and and, and this is great because it makes I think, anyway, the performance much more of the moment, much more interactive. It's not that I change the tricks that I do, but it's the way I present them or the things that I say in particular, the jokes I might make. I've got this whole database of gags and lines and things in my head, and sometimes a situation will occur and I just come straight out with it. And I think everybody who performs a lot gets it perhaps into that situation. Of course, there is a slight danger here, and that is that in the excitement of the performance, you may sometimes do something or say something that is not quite appropriate or misses the mark. And that can be a a slight problem. There have been a few high profile um, examples of this that I can think of that I've seen with other magicians where something has happened and in the excitement of the performance moment, they've come out with a line which is funny in itself but inappropriate for the group that it's being said to and you can feel it's like a a sharp intake of breath 
And the performer then sometimes can lose the audience for a while. They go, whoa, no, 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 I don't like that comment. And that can be a bit of a problem. So I think sometimes in the excitement and the adrenaline rush, it's quite important to, and I find myself having to put the brakes on occasionally when I think that there's a line, I can feel it coming, oh, I want to say, and I'm looking at and I'm thinking, is this line right for these people? Sometimes you just say it. Uh, It's too late. You just say it. And 99 times out of 100, of course, no, no, it's not that outrageous. So it's it's not, nothing is, no damage is done. But there are other occasions when, especially if you're the sort of performer, perhaps who makes jokes about individual people or makes fun of individual people. If you just get that slightly wrong, you can cause offence rather than fun. And that's a difficult balance, especially if you're not that experienced at doing this sort of thing, that you, if you get it wrong, it can prove to be uh, something that spoils your overall performance but I do love that it's almost like a feeling of power when you're on top of things and the show is going really well and I suppose it's just a question of keeping the whole thing in a context and making sure that you you do the best for every audience that you're with um, even if they are lots of them very different in their nature and character. It's generally recognised isn't it that there are some performers who are very creative they come up with loads of different variations on plots i mean jay sankey clear example if he comes up with a or develops if you like a principle of something he'll brainstorm it and come up with 25 different applications for it he has this facility and this ability to do that and People who aren't particularly creative, I think sometimes are quite jealous or envious of people who appear to be very creative. And they say, well, how do you do that? How how do you come up with all these tricks? How do you come up with all these different ideas and variations? And there's an old saying, isn't there, that that, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think this is actually quite true for magical inventors. Because if you look at the people who are particularly creative, they often have a reason for being so. Yes, they may have some innate ability, perhaps, um, have a lot of knowledge which they can pull together at any given moment in order to find new avenues to explore. A lot of experience, perhaps. But I think the, the main reason why creative people are creative is often because they need to be. I find this with myself. I mentioned earlier on about my e-video newsletter uh, and my e-club pro Both of these um, things require me every month to have new material. And this is I find this very stimulating because I think, right, I need to think of some things. And rather than just me jogging along, doing what I've always done, it makes me relook at things. It makes me look back at my old notebooks and see things that I was working on years ago that I never finished developing. Ideas that I used to do and which now aren't suitable, but by looking at them again, you can change them so that they are. And that impetus of needing some things every month to to offer to to my customers, uh, I really like that pressure in inverted commas because it helps me to have, and gives me a timetable for being a little bit creative. Without that, I find things drift. Running a business, uh, doing shows, selling magic, doing lectures and so on and so forth. It's quite uh, all consuming, or at least it can be. And you spend so much time working in your business 
that you forget that there are other things out there that you could be developing and trying and new tricks and, and new principles that you could be perhaps thinking about. When you have a reason to do it, then suddenly it brings into, into sharp focus the need and that then creates the, the, the creative, certainly in me anyway, the creative urge. It's like if I have a particular show that I want, that I'm going to be doing, let's say it's a special birthday, uh, an adult birthday party, and I think, wouldn't it be nice to, to do something special for the birthday lady? It's her 80th birthday. What could I do? And then I start trying to be creative about it and coming up with something that would be very personal for her, adapting tricks or, or whatever it might be, coming up with some new idea that I then go out and do. Now, if I didn't have that particular birthday party to do, then I wouldn't. Why would I be thinking about a personalised trick for somebody? Well, you probably wouldn't, would you? It's necessity creates that urge to be creative. And without that necessity, if you take all that away, I think a lot of the motivation disappears. And in the same way that Jay Sankey needs to come up with new products so he can make DVDs and, and sell things, he needs new material. And for years, he's been brilliant at finding this stuff because he has the need. Well, there we are. That's another half an hour of chat gone by. Hope you've enjoyed it and found that the topic's interesting. It's been uh, it's been great to have you along. If you're going away on holiday this month, then I hope you have a really great time. I hope the weather is kind. Probably best to go abroad if you're in the UK, but then who knows. And uh, I will be back here again next month, of course, with some more chat. And I look forward to seeing you in August. Bye for now.